0: Today's episode is made possible by Demandbase. Demandbase is transforming the way B2B companies go to market by enabling customers to embrace modern digital sales and marketing with a complete end-to-end suite of products. Thanks for listening.
1: Welcome back everybody to another episode of Sunny Side Up. I'm your host, Asher Matthew, and I'm super excited to have Sam Gong on the phone with us to talk about unlocking data science to improve qualification and opportunity win rates. Wow, that's a long title, but Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Asher. Happy to be here. Fantastic. Well, Sam, we've run into each other over the last few years, but tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are.
0: So I started my career as a solutions consultant, as an enterprise solutions consultant for Appian. This was back when they were a 300 person company. They've gone public and I I loved sales. I loved the competitive aspect of it and I loved building solutions and custom proofs of concept and then took a a hard pivot to go run a B2C e-commerce startup. And so that business was all about growth and had to put on my marketing hat and learn all the different channel marketing tactics and how to stitch those together into an attribution model and and a compass that could guide the growth of our our startup. So I, I feel like I've always had one foot in both the sales world and the marketing world and today I run the biz dev team for Adobe, the digital experience group, which lets me keep one foot in both both worlds, right? We live right in the middle of the funnel. Marketing has to work for our jobs to work. We need to do our jobs well for sales to work. And I love it because I feel like BDRs are the beating heart of growth. If, if you get the BDR engine working, then your company hits targets. And if it's not working, then you're always on the front lines and able to work with the people at the company that can change the things that need to be changed.
1: Somebody once told me that the BDR role is one that makes a lead poor environment a lead rich environment. What do you think about that? A lead poor environment, a lead rich environment. I
0: think the way I, maybe what this is speaking to is BDRs are omnivores, right? Like we take the quota and we're out over the barrel and... If the leads are bad, then we outbound, yep. right? And if the leads are good, then we've got a, a wind in our sails and our jobs are a little bit easier, but- Qualify, yeah. Yeah, whether you've got leads or you don't have leads, you've got a growth target and yep. you've got an army of BDRs who are resourceful and have a bunch of the tools for BDRs just get better every year. And you find a way, right? I, I think if you've got good BDR managers and creative BDRs, top-down,
1: bottoms-up, you find a way to hit your growth goals. Yep, yep. So let's talk about the topic today. Why did you choose to speak about this specific topic?
0: Maybe it's because I'm a middle child, you know, we've got these growth goals where we're trying to build our businesses, but there's things we can spend our time on that are really rewarding. And there's things we can spend our time on that are really frustrating. And one of those frustrating things that I've seen in my my career managing BDRs is handing leads or opportunities, whatever you call them at that stage in your funnel to the sales team, right? And this accept, reject, are we going to work this deal? Are we not going to work this deal? There's a lot of things about that handoff where it's just an internal decision. Right? And there's no value that's being added to the company the longer you spend on it and you can it can become contentious, commissions involved, right? Yep. And so I think bringing data science and some objectivity to this at scale pays dividends because it stops those conflicts. It lets you stop fighting internal battles and get back to beating the market and winning. And so this is one of those really creative solutions. I can't take all the credit for this. It's not like we invented this practice, but bringing that in has been transformative for us and I think that it's just a, a really cool solution that once we had in place, we didn't have to go back and revisit, right? It was such a good solution that every year we tune it a little bit, but this is a solved problem. And anytime you can just solve a problem once and be done with it, it's huge.
1: Yeah. So I I love that you said that because there's different connotations of the word data science in the marketplace. And some people take it as the silver bullet to solve all their problems, right? Would be great if you could actually define what data science means to your team, right? And the adjacent teams. And then how have you structured your teams to work with a data science team? Yeah, that's a
0: great question. So data science, I, I think people apply that to all kinds of things, right? You've got basic machine learning, you've got statistical analysis, you've got super complex neural network deep things, right, that, that aren't really going to apply to a sales funnel in the next few years, as far as I can tell. So for us, data science is, can we look at what we've done in the past? Can we bring in our big brains to help us? use what we've done in the past to predict what's going to happen in the future, and then draw those learnings out into a process that anyone can understand. right? And so it's a few steps. right? You've got to have enough data for that exercise to be worthwhile. And so this isn't something that you're going to implement on day one of a startup. This is something once you've been in the market for several years and you've had good years of growth and bad years of growth, and you've got that record in your data lake or your CRM or wherever those things live, that you can go back and mine for insights, and then you can validate those insights with seller knowledge. And I think one of the places where data science falls down is you don't bridge the gap between the model and and the inputs and the outputs and the real world. And developing these models for opportunity handoff and lead scoring, we always get four false positives and then one really valuable insight. And it's going through those models and refining them with sellers right sellers who are good at their job and have been doing it for years can always tell you when something smells wrong right and they're like well if that's the result that the model is giving you the model is broken and the sellers are usually right so it's a combination of mind the data have the data science team bring what they can kind of from their pure lab environment right back to the field who has the the real world experience and knowledge to say well that feels directionally correct and then you test it and you learn and you iterate
1: yep. and i'm glad again you said that because we've had a few thought leaders around data science on the show and one thing that's common and i repeat this again just for the benefit of our users is when you embark on a project like this you have to be very open-minded because in tech land, we are first taught to learn about features and functionality and the value that somebody can extract from features and functionality is on day one. Yeah. The value that you extract from data or data science teams is over time. So inherently, philosophically, you're looking at the situation completely differently. And you have to build and strengthen this patience muscle that allows you to inspect, go to the root cause, understand, bring it back up, and then train the go-to-market teams around you to accept what the data is telling you, and then go on from there. Because the normal thing that, or maybe like the traditional thing that sales and marketing teams would do is reject all the data right as they see it. Right, that's like the That like you're like, hey guys, just found an awesome report. Boom, rejection. Right, right away. It's kind of kind of like seller transformation a little bit, yep. but but you've, you've got to get them to to look towards a brighter future, and and it's it's difficult because it's the leap of faith that they're taking too and their commissions are tied to it, right? Versus the, the data science teams don't have anything tied to their their work job.
0: It's such a good point, Asher. It's, I think, mutual expectation setting, right? The data science team has to understand what they're offering and know where they're starting. And they need to realize that the first version isn't going to be perfect and go in with the expectation they're going to refine it over time. And then with the field, with marketing, with anyone that expects that you just flip a switch and suddenly all your problems are solved. Like if you set up the expectations, that way both teams are going to be disappointed and abandon the project. You've got to paint that multi-year roadmap and show the small wins along the way.
1: Okay, let's learn from your experience, right? Let's dive into improving qualification. Educate us a little bit.
0: Yeah. So we've got two different scoring models and they're very different. And the one that I want to focus on is the opportunity grading model. Yeah. But we'll speak about both of them just to contextualize it for a second. We get leads that are passed by marketing, right? And there's reams and reams of best practices and white papers and guides on scoring for how you do firmographic analysis, how you do demographic analysis, right? Marketing needs to have some data science and a model behind who you talk to and what you talk to them about. Yep. to spend their time in the right places, right? To spend their demand gen resources and their cycles and their content creation cycles, addressing the market that's interested in the products that we have. And then you've got behavioral scoring. This all still just applies to the leads and what we get from marketing, which is when you speak to them, yep. right? When is it worth taking a sales cycle and a BDR and, and putting a human on that thread of demand? So that's all upstream. And and you know we're not gonna talk a ton about that today. The piece that's really interesting yep. to me and where we've seen these huge wins is after we qualify, how do we hand off to sales? How are we confident that marketing qualified pipeline is going to close, right? And you, you can see funnels with all kinds of different shapes that get held up and are fat in different places and skinny in different places. And from my perspective, the worst one is the one that you always hit your pipeline, create targets, and you always miss your revenue targets. If your pipeline isn't predictive of revenue, then stop what you're doing. Stop all that work to build pipeline. Your model is wrong. And so if you fix it at the end and have a predictive pipeline at the end, then you're confident that all of your upstream investments, all of the things you're doing that drive more pipeline are also going to drive revenue. So it's almost like back to front, right? Like get the the handoff and the pipe qualification standards correct. And then everything is faster to iterate on. Your north star is clearer. It's in focus as you tune marketing and demand gen and all those other things. So we're talking about that handoff and how we measure our opportunities as they move from marketing qualified to sales qualified and how we've tuned that so that Sellers know which leads they should accept from the biz dev team and which ones they should reject. And when we look at our pipeline, we've got a high degree of confidence in what's in there and what's going to close and what's not going to close. And so this was where we applied data science, where I think it's less common because the volumes are lower. You don't get nearly as many opportunities as you do leads. And so you really have to be a certain scale before this practice is worthwhile. And we didn't start with data science. We started with more of a handshake agreement. and. You look at a product, we, Adobe has all kinds of products in the bag. Let's take Marketo. You can recognize what a good Marketo opportunity looks like. Any seller that's been in the game for more than a year knows when there's a company that's just nowhere near ready for a tool that's that big and sophisticated, or maybe they are, right? And and so the first step of us getting this opportunity handoff to a point where we could apply a model and apply this continuous improvement data-driven learning to it was agreeing here are the factors that we want to track on every deal. And so you've got your basic bank qualification, right? The things that BDRs have to check in any sales process. And then we experimented with adding some technographics to it, right? What are the other pieces of the MarTech stack that this company has or doesn't have? What what do they use for an ESP today? And some of those signals, when we looked back in our database and our closed one analysis over the past prior years, aligned exactly with what the sellers were saying, right? There's, There's clear signs of maturity that BDRs can uncover during qualification that are extremely valuable in helping the sales team know whether we have a real qualified lead or not. And so it started with a handshake and the sales leadership and the BDR leadership getting in a room, going through a lot of these different potential factors and saying, okay, this quarter, we're going to have the BDRs track and capture these 20 during qualification right? And that 20 got whittled down to 15 and 12. And we built up a a data set as we were qualifying and continuously looked back and said, did these factors result in us closing more deals or not? right and and it's it's a flexible model you can always add different criteria to it you can adjust the weights that you give to those different inputs but over time it went from being that handshake model to a tightly set number of factors that the bdrs always uncover in qualification Mm -hmm. and based on what those factors signal a grade that that opportunity gets given like beef in the supermarket right so the bdr qualification is done we've met with the prospect uncovered all these key points. And then filled out a scorecard, which based on the inputs will give the opportunity an A, B, C, or D grade. Yep. And so that handoff now with the seller, right? This all talked about how do we reduce friction? How do we reduce the number of disputes? And, and it's it's really efficiency, right? You don't want your BDRs fighting and worrying about whether all the work they've done to qualify an opportunity is going to help get them some commission credit or not. You want them spending their time going out and working on the next one. And so bringing some objectivity to this and this ABCD ranking just made it so BDRs when they were bringing an opportunity to sales, they sort of knew, right? If it was an A grade opportunity, it was likely going to get accepted. And if it didn't, they could go to their manager and say, hey, i worked really hard. We've got a great deal. The model says this is a great deal. And we're able to just spend less time worrying about should we accept it or not accept it and spend more time on finding the next opportunity. and where this works for the sales team, right? They they don't like fighting with BDRs either. They've got better stuff to do. Those grades are every quarter closely tied and predictive of whether those deals are going to win or not. So we see win rates on our best A-grade opportunities in the high 20s, most quarters, right? And that, that ladder is down from B to C to D. And your D-grade opportunities, they bring down your overall win rate. You know, it's a 3 4% win rate. But if you have a seller that sees the the opportunity there, you can still go and sell and, and convert a lot of those. But just that common language and that model at the handoff point gave everyone a way to feel good about what we were taking into the pipeline, feel good about what the, the work they've done during qualification and being ready to just truly hand it off and not watch it and worry about whether it was going to be accepted and become sales qualified and just smooth out the entire end-to-end process and greatly improve the, the predictability of both BDR and sales.
1: So I want to highlight two points because this podcast is for executives. And so there's two really important things that are that in everything that, that Sam shared with us, right? One is once a model is deployed, resist the temptation to make tweaks to it two weeks into the deployment because it's very, very, very attractive. And because you are in a power position, you may be able to influence your way to change the weights in somebody's favor, right? But you've got to like give it six weeks or two months or you've got to give it some time to normalize because every time a new model is developed, things normally get bad before they actually get good. And so I guess that's the rule of bad situations anyways, like things always get bad before they get good. But that's really important. The second point that I want to highlight in this podcast from what Sam just talked about is the ability to, when you are an exec who's not in sales and marketing, and you are seeing that there is, because you're going to hear, right? You're going to hear in the corridors, in Slack chats, and like when you do skip levels and lunch meetings, you're going to hear SDRs and A's are fighting, that's a system issue. It's not a resource issue. And it requires leadership then in that moment to pacify the situation and say, well, let's understand and get to a root cause. And if you're another executive and you see your sales and marketing brethren or sisters like struggling with this problem, I would love for you to actually jump in and say, why don't we just hold a neutral workshop and then get to the bottom of this? Because the answers are actually what Sam just talked about
0: yeah i think that's a really astute observation right that what what are the signs of smoke that mean you have a fire right and so i'd say you can look at your pipeline dashboard and if you see things are always getting stuck either pre-qualification or post-qualification you probably have to do some inspection on that handoff process or if qualitatively you hear that this is a friction point between departments and same thing for marketing demand gen and biz dev right or biz dev and sales any one of those handoffs you can see the same friction and it's everyone's problem right and leaders that are aligned towards what the end goal needs to be for all the functions working together should collaborate and be able to go in and say what would it take for this to stop being a friction point what would it take for next quarter for this not to be one of the bullets in our qbr on why things are not working and then commit to like you said this is a long-term build. You're not going to solve it in two weeks. Yep. You've got to agree that you're going to take a swing at it and it's not going to work. And then you're going to keep refining it until you start to see that that directionality. And then over time, it becomes the common language and it disappears from the QBR slides, right? It's, yep. it's not the fire that you need to go fight anymore. You can direct your energy and your resources towards other more important things.
1: Now, one thing I want to actually talk to you about is because you've used the word data science multiple times in this conversation, right? But do you actually go work with a data scientist or do you work with like a program manager who then works with a data scientist? Like how is that interaction happening?
0: So it's, we've been through this with enough of the different business units at Adobe and Teams that it's gone a couple of different ways. And in the early, early days, I'd sat in the room with the people that were using, what's the language R I think, right? And crunching all the numbers and showing us the different probabilities and outputs. And We The fascinating meeting between the biz dev leadership and the sales leadership and the data science team where the data science team actually presented a menu of options for how we could refine the model in the next quarter. And this, again, this is, you know, 18 months, two years into this project where people speak this language. People are talking about opportunity grades and A, B, Cs, and Ds. And based on what we think we're going to touch in a quarter... The data science team said now we can tweak the scoring in these different ways and if we tweak it this way here's what we think your distribution of a's b's c's and d's is going to be and so you can imagine a bell curve that's got a a big hump in the middle and it's mostly b and c grade ops or we can give you a, a flatter bell curve with more a grade and b grade ops but it means that your win rates for those different buckets will be impacted. And so it took the conversation between biz dev leadership and sales leadership to this kind of abstract data level where they're saying, "Well, what do we want our sales funnel to look like? Do we want our sellers really only chasing after like the best opportunities and that should only represent 5% of the deals that they see, or do we want a more aggressive sales process? Do we want to signal to the sellers that, you know, a, a 15% win rate" who shouldn't jump out of bed in the morning to chase a deal with a 15% win rate? And so it's been at that level, right, in the early days, and now it's matured a little bit, and and it's more of a supply chain, right? The data goes into the CRM, the team comes back with recommendations, and we don't see it as as nitty-gritty as that. Yeah, did I answer the question?
1: Yes, yeah, it did. And another interesting observation from what you just said is every time you get a data science team involved and it's about leads, the volume almost always goes down. And the reason why I'm pointing this out is because the number of leads actually go into your resourcing as in headcount plan. And so it doesn't mean that you just like the minute you got these people involved, leads went down. Now you're like, crap, I have like four extra STRs, right? They just need to be converted to something else and maybe a quarter or two away from like coming back on to the same level of volume that you were before. It's just because the pre-funnels activities have to also be updated to match the model.
0: Yeah. And maybe the general way that.
1: So do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah.
0: I, I think the way I would generalize that is you can focus on volume or you can focus on efficiency and volume is a much easier thing to measure. It's much easier to just scale everything up and say, well, we did 10 this year. Let's do 20 next year and double everything all throughout the model. But I think the the much better way to grow a business is to build something that's really efficient and then scale up from that that culture of efficiency. And what, what you're talking about with data science, whether it's at the lead scoring level or the opportunity scoring model is how do we do this the most efficient way, starting with closing, right? And and your specialist resources, your SCs, right? You always design your sales process to not go run custom proofs of concept on a deal that has no chance of closing, right? You can't, you can't run a business that way. And so from the back to the front, you design your funnel to be efficient. It's just easier to scale. And so you can end up in a situation like you're talking about where you've scaled too quickly or you know, you've realized that you've pumped volume too high and now you need to go address efficiency. I, yeah, I'd, I'd hope that if you realize you have too many BDRs because the leads aren't converting, that you can convert them to SDRs, find some other way to deploy them. But I think the reason why you end up in that state, Asher, is because it's so much easier to measure volume and align on did we do more this month versus last month, and that's a drumbeat that the team can march to, then did we get more efficient? And that's that's where I think you really have to have a culture and data in the conversation to keep
1: your eye on the prize. Yep. Okay. So was that all the education on the op model? And do you want to touch on the other model as well that you wanted to talk about?
0: Yeah, I think that covered. We could talk a little bit about where that model applies and doesn't apply for a second, and then then we'll talk about lead scoring. Mm-hmm. So again, this this is anytime you're bringing in a process and a model. Right. And you're saying every time that we encounter this business situation, we have a track that we want it to run down. That makes a lot more sense when your deals look the same. Right. So if you're selling a product without a lot of customization, if you're selling a product with very simple pricing, model, process, all those things are going to very quickly be valuable. To you. If you're selling to the enterprise and you close 10 deals a year, right, then every one of those deals is likely very different. The way it's priced, who the decision makers are, and model and process add much less value to solving that problem, right? So when we look across Adobe segments, we want to be clear that this is the way that we operate in mid-market SMB. And this, this doesn't add that much value to the enterprise, right? Having the common language is useful, but the data science behind it, don't over extrapolate 10 closed deals into some kind of roadmap for how you want your enterprise sales team to close next year, right? Make sure you've got significant body and enough at-bats that it makes sense to do this analysis and rinse and repeat and bring in the power of data science to get more efficient at the rinse and repeat motion.
1: Yep. Solid points. Again, you have to give your team at bats. Yeah. They've got to get to some level of proficiency before you can start this process.
0: Yeah. Okay. And so then if we look upstream a little bit, right, I think every biz dev leader mm-hmm. who's working at a tech company, who's working at any kind of scale has a relationship with their demand gen counterparts and that team. Right. And yep. you live and die. Same thing. The relationship between BDRs and AEs is sort of defined by that handoff. And is that a contentious handoff? Do we agree on when things should and shouldn't be handed off? Same thing applies to our upstream partners in DemandGen. And I think it's the same practice, right? It's establishing feedback loops and trusting each other to describe what's working and what's not working. And that starts with handshakes and kind of a qualitative perspective. And then as you feel like that's moving in a direction, bring in the analysis and start to inspect things at scale in the database, look for patterns right? And use those insights to refine your lead scoring. And I think that the reason why it's even tougher for demand gen and BDRs to align on this is the question of when, right? We can agree on targeting. We can agree on what our ICP is. And well, that's definitely a decision maker and they're definitely in an account that should buy our products. But the harder thing to align on is what part of the customer journey is owned by marketing and what part is owned by BDR and how much do they overlap? And the reason why I think it's so much tougher for those teams is it's rarely a clean handoff, right? It's not like marketing goes and they present two white papers and a webinar to that lead and now that lead doesn't need anything else from marketing and now they're handed off and everything is gonna happen from the BDR down. With sales, I think it usually is a cleaner handoff. You still get air cover from marketing, but the biz dev rep rolls off. They go and they work on another thing. And so aligning biz dev and AEs, you've got a clean handoff point and you can agree on what that is it's squishier between demand gen and biz dev, right? We've we warmed them up. They're clearly through the awareness part of the customer journey, and now they're starting to do research. Okay, the biz dev rep is gonna reach out and they're gonna start putting them in a sales engagement sequence and, and calling them and trying to get in touch we still want marketing warming them up, right? We still want contact from the the demand gen department. We still want things to contribute to the score there. And it becomes a lot harder with a team of BDRs and a a whole lot of automated campaigns to track what should be happening at that stage. And when is it done? When is DG done?
1: Solid points as you're talking about this. It's like these two things are like two separate problems that need to be separately handled. And having gone through like building go-to-market motions, like, you know, it's, you can't build the whole go-to-market at the same time. It's got to be built in pieces so that things layer in and then you're solving one stage and then getting to the next stage and then solving for the next stage. So that's, that's the same way to yes. do it. Certainly. <laughs> So you mean to say the T2, D 3 model that VCs all help us, encourage us to work on, you know, that's not the right way? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't know that insane is wrong in all cases. That's, yeah. that's the caveat. But...
1: Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, again, fortunately, I've been blessed to be, be able to go through this go-to-market building process a, a few times now. Every time I get into it, I always, like after I'm on the other side of it, I'm, I always go back think, thinking, God damn it. I'm definitely not going to go do this again, where we built like three parts of the go to market at the same time. And then you go to the next thing, and you're like, wait, <laughs> we're doing this thing again. Like, well, when will this stop?
0: <laughs> it's yeah. it's a chicken and egg problem, right? Yeah. Like it would be beautiful if you really could do it sequentially and isolate the variables. And OK, we yes. got that working on to the next thing. But they're yes. interdependent, right? At yes. the end of the day, the whole thing has to work or, or it doesn't.
1: So you've spent some a significant portion of your experience dealing with these issues. So were there any personal lessons that you learned across this journey or any main ones?
0: Yeah, you and I, before we started recording, we were talking about influence, right? And That's I think... There's one thing to have a compass and a North star in which direction, know which direction you think we need to go in. And then I think there's an equally important part about listening to other perspectives. You know, and I think a lot of my growth is I come in headstrong sometimes and I wanna move quickly right? Insane isn't always wrong, right? I fully believe that. And if you've got a team that's passionate and you love your product and you have a dent that you're going to put in the market, why wouldn't you run as fast as you possibly can, right? But sometimes that puts blinders on us. Sometimes that makes us think that we know what the goal line is and we're going to drag everyone along with us. And you go faster by going a little bit slower and influencing and listening and making sure that you really have consensus and buy-in because it's not going to work overnight. You know, and if you really are committing to this long journey, having people bought into, we're going to suffer through the part where it gets worse before it gets better to your point. And we're all okay doing that. And it's not your idea or my idea. That buy-in and consensus building is critical to making progress on these things that don't happen overnight, right? So knowing what to do is is half the battle. And I think knowing how to work with everyone else that you need to paint that long-term vision and how long it's going to get there and how we're going to go through the steps together, equally important. I think that's probably my biggest learning from trying to apply some of these practices.
1: Pick your executive friend well, you know. (laughs) Cool. All right, so let's move to the next portion of this podcast. Is there a resource, right? A book, a blog, a newsletter, a website, or a video that you can share with our audience?
0: The one I'm going to recommend closely related to what we're talking about today is The Signal and the Noise. Yep, This is a book by Nate Silver, right, who kind of got onto the scene by predicting, I think it was Obama's victory, down to every last electoral vote, right? So he ran a blog, he had his models, and he was pushing the practice of data science and statistical analysis to forecast these things. And this is his book describing the the practice of forecasting and where we've gotten good at it and where we still aren't very good at it. And so my older brother's a data scientist, right? He and I geek out about some of this stuff all the time, but it's always been arm's length for me. And this was the book that he recommended and I really enjoyed helping me kind of go under the hood a little bit. And even if it's not the thing that I'm doing day to day, understand the limits, understand where it works, where it doesn't work and how to work with these teams. And again, we talked about expectation setting, right? Understand that it's not magic, right? That it is science and there are limits to science.
1: Well said. All right, do you have... Two or three other people in B two B tech who are in either go to market or data science who you would recommend we bring onto the show?
0: Yeah, these are more go to market people. I just I looked at my LinkedIn feed to get some ideas on who who I thought uh, was worth paying attention to here. Yeah, and I don't know how LinkedIn does their curation, but. Based on my title, based on the things I interact with, I'm, I'm in this loop now where I get a lot more go-to-market thought leadership than data science thought leadership. I also think yep. go-to-market people hang out and broadcast more on LinkedIn because that's how they build their brand and yes. data science people do it elsewhere. Yep. So my recommendations are all on the go-to-market yep. side and shout outs for Chris Walker, who runs a consultancy called Refine Labs. And I find myself in violent agreement with probably 80% of the stuff that he posts And so he's come in as a little bit of a firebrand talking about top of funnel and talking about how we get stuck in bad models and bad models turn into bad behaviors that can last for years and be incredibly hard to break out of. And, you know, really great thought leadership that's current, right? I think he's not one of those people that has kind of one thought and just repeats that one thought for 10 years because he's actively practicing. I think he's really in tune with where the industry is and speaking to what needs to change at a macro level and then within companies that are struggling with some of these things to break out of the models that, you know, might have worked 10 years ago and don't really apply anymore. So Chris Walker, Refine Labs. And then the other two are are people near and dear to my heart running a biz dev team. Biz Dev, I think we we've got more of a seat at the table than we ever have, right? If you go back 10, 15 years, Biz Dev was Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, right? Call down the list, right? Did you get an answer? Yes or no. And the process and the data visibility that we have now in the middle of the funnel is better than it ever has been. Yes. And I don't think it's anywhere close to mature. I think we've still got a long way to go really building the science of sales and the people who help with that, not just from a data science perspective, but from in the trenches, like how do you get better at this? How do you help your teams get to quota perspective? I love Sam Nelson, who's the BDR leader at outreach or one of the BDR leaders at outreach with the blue hair and the hot tips. And like his content is just so genuine and immediately applicable in every case, right? I think they're a company that's gone through rapid scaling because of their BDR motion, right? And you've got marketing engines, you've got sales engines. And I think more and more, we're going to see companies that grow based off their BDR engine. And Sam's been at the forefront of that and shares his playbook openly. So we shamelessly steal a lot of what what Sam provides. My last shout out is Beck Holland, who I think is as much an artist as a, a seller. And she's great copy, right? And she breaks down how copy and language and communication make a sales process work or not work and gets all the way into the weeds. She's been in a couple different go-to-market roles and, and led teams doing this. And just, I love the way that she breaks things down into models that help you understand why some things work and don't work. You're not running blind A-B tests where you're like, well, was this one better or that one better? Okay, great. And you just kind of keep throwing stuff at the wall. She does the thinking behind it, right? And it's equal parts language and communication and, and that art, right? Where like what we say matters and how we say it matters. And how do we apply that to a sales process in a genuine way? So I've got a program management team that's working across Adobe, trying to improve the efficacy of all of our BDR touch points. And they're always cribbing stuff from Beck Holland. She's running flip the script now. That's her group that tries to help improve sales and BDR outcomes with great testing and great copy.
1: Great, great recommendations. So Chris Walker is actually, a, I think it was a software engineer before, or was an engineer before, before he got into marketing. And and that's why a lot of his stuff is very scientific. And he's just brought on, I'm a big fan of, of his too.
0: I've got that in my background too. Maybe that's just my yeah.
1: selection bias, right? <laughs> Maybe I like him
0: because he thinks the same way I do about a lot of these things.
1: Yeah, it's very systems-oriented. And then on the copy thing, Beck is all fantastic too. I was on the phone with the VP of corporate marketing for BlackBerry, who was responsible for this latest rebrand that they've done. And I specifically asked him about copywriting because it's something that I personally infatuated with as well, because back in the day, you used to have like art directors, right? Like the art direct, all the creative was like so important, right? But the copy actually brought everything to life. It gave meaning. It actually built with emotion, right? Yeah. What this guy actually shared with me was to follow At least this person, Bill Burnback, is actually an advertising industry legend. But for all of those people listening to this podcast who are actually copywriting fans, follow some of the work that Bill Burnback actually taught the industry because the industry is actually still using the same principles. And and Bill Burnback actually was the person that actually brought art directors and copywriters together. Back in the day, again, this is maybe a little bit more Mad Men-ish, but the two teams never used to talk to each other. They used to be separate. And that was how he unlocked the industry. And that was how he brought his genius in.
0: The Mad Men reference. I don't remember where this was, but there was a piece of satire on what would Don Draper be doing today, right, if he was in digital marketing. And I think back when we had mass media and it was the TV ad that would go out nationally and everything went into getting that launch right, the amount of brainpower and wordsmithing and just iteration that went into the product that marketing delivered, everything was like high touch, And I think because the cost of launch and now, you know, to to create a BDR sequence and send out 10,000 emails, it's come down to zero. We've lost some of that craftsmanship and some of that care that goes into the message. And, you know, everyone's inbox suffers as a result. We all get a lot of email and a lot of them are really, really bad. And finding that balance where you have to cover the ground, right? You have a quota to hit, you have territory that you have to touch. But how are you adding value to those people? What are the words that you're saying to them, right? It's not just, did I send 10 emails? what did you communicate in those 10 emails? right? I, I love that there are still people who yep. are as passionate about that because if you lose track of that, the model is just going to be a bunch of numbers and you can drive volume all day without ever connecting with anyone about something that, that matters.
1: All right. Well, I'm sure there's going to be people who want to connect with you after this podcast. So what would be the best way for them to reach out to you, Sam?
0: I already kind of divulged, outed myself that I spent half my time just scrolling through linkedin
1: yep. <laughs> you can usually catch me on
0: linkedin so sam gong and i'm at adobe there's i think there's another sam gong that was at theranos sometimes yes. i get his recruiting email but we're different people
1: <laughs> well definitely don't think you want to be an associate with Theranos, you know. I think was one of the good guys. Yeah. <laughs> well, then we should recruit him if he's doing PDR work. <laughs> <laughs> well, because Theranos, I think, did have to recruit a bunch of people, right? So, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show, Sam, and, and talking to us about opportunity creation models. This is like, we are on a long quest of helping people understand the applications of data science and more and more and more leaders, especially go-to-market leaders, need to understand and more importantly, build the competence of data science in their teams if they're fortunate enough to do that or figure out a way to include the data science teams into their work. Because a lot of times, if you actually go talk to data scientists, they're actually sitting there thinking, wow, I do all this work, but nobody cares about it. That's literally the feeling that those teams have. And it's because nobody on the other side is reaching out to them because we're all doing like all our salesy and go to markety stuff. And if you just include them in, they'll be more than happy because all the scientists want to do is work on cool stuff that makes an impact. That's pretty much their life.
0: And I think for marketing, for the field, I can remember kind of the first time that it worked, right? This was when I was running my startup and we were testing different attribution models and we would change our spend mix month to month. And then finally we hit something that was directionally better than what we'd been doing and we saw the results, right? And then a switch flips in your mind and it stops being like, oh, well, this is math homework. This is, I don't have time for this. I'm marketing or I'm selling, right? As soon as you realize that this practice has this value that turns into money. Right. If you're doing data science right, it just turns into growth and money for your business. And I think after that first win, that first experience where you've seen it, you believe in it. Right. And then you go look for where are the other places we can apply this. And and I think the more marketers yep. and sellers that have yep. that first win, yes. it'll build bridges with the data science practice. And like I said, I think the, the science of sales, we're still immature, right? Yep. The data to even inspect these things and iterate on these things has only become available recently. So we've we've got a lot of really exciting things, I think, still to uncover by collaborating between the field and data science.
1: Yep. Yep. No, the journey continues. All right. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. And maybe the next time we do this, we're going to have you and your brother both on the show, because there may be some (laughs) things that we can learn from him too, but we'll save that for a later episode. But Sam, thank you so much and best of luck on your journey.
0: Thanks so much, Asher. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Sunnyside Up. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us, and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts.
1: You can also find us on YouTube and Demand-Based TV.